0: Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today's episode is about shame and guilt. I suppose we should talk about the distinctions between shame and guilt and then think about how it is that women experience those two feelings differently than men. So I guess for me, I think when I think of shame... I'm thinking about the way in which we judge ourselves as being inadequate or lesser. And when I think about guilt, I think that that's a feeling that we use to describe um, how we feel bad about something we've done to another person or to, to some, somebody exterior to ourselves. What about you, Laura? What do you think about when
1: you think about shame and guilt? How do you think about those two terms? I think guilt is offense-based. It's based in, like, you feeling bad about a particular incident that's a discrete incident. And it's very much feeling bad about that incident for yourself based on a particular behavior. And I think shame is about the core of your identity. It's about you feeling bad about something that's a part of you, something that's like a recurring behavior And I think shame is communal. You experience shame in relation to other people. You experience shame because you feel inferior to other people for some reason or inadequate for some reason. So for me, shame is an internal feeling of wrongdoing or wrong being. And guilt is about discrete incidents.
0: Yeah, I feel like shame is about shortcomings, I think inadequacy is a really huge part of shame. And I think that that gets put on to women differently than men. But I think it's ultimately about ways in which we fall short in terms of what we're expected to do in a particular social context. And I I think you're right that guilt is about specific actions, you know, that we take towards others. But I guess I'm interested in the modes in which shame and guilt are actually felt differently. Because, I mean, you and I both agree, I'm sure that everybody has the capacity to feel both shame and guilt. Certainly men feel shame and guilt too. But I think one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about shame and guilt is because I think that they are felt differently by women. Women's culture creates a different kind of perception of those feelings that is, I think, more complete and profound and consuming than it is for men. And I think when men do feel guilt and shame, often that's in relation to their own expressions of social power, which... On the whole, especially for white men, are so much higher. So I guess I want to think about ways in which women experience shame and guilt differently. What do you think about that?
1: Right. Well, I think women are held to certain expectations. Actually, I think women grow up hearing insults that men give to each other that are feminized. So like calling someone a sissy or like a girl is an insult. Mm-hmm. So that's an early shame, just, like, in being a woman at all. The shame of just, like, being female. Or being like, closely associated to the feminine. Or, yeah, or feminine. Being feminine at all is actually a derogatory comment. Ontology. Yeah. yeah.
0: Way of being in the world.
1: Yeah. yeah, so, like, that is just, like, a baseline white noise shame that women have to experience. But then on top of that, there's, like, tons of layers Of other kinds of shame because women are held to all of these expectations. There's like a lot of scripts for women that men don't even have to think about following. Motherhood and beauty and sex object, and... Virgin. (laughs) Yeah. So there's all of these scripts that are supposed to be a designator of like a perfect woman. Perfection. That's even a script that women are supposed to be held to. Why aren't you perfect? And then when men mess up it's like less of a mark against their character it's like oh that was a mistake and women mess up and they're like you're not perfect (laughs) yeah so and you're nothing mm -hmm. so there's this perfection that women feel like they have to achieve and then anything that indicates that you're not perfect is a source of shame in a way that it's not for men
0: And I think too, like that happens around aging, you know, like women aren't allowed to age and get old. Women aren't allowed to be ugly or um, have aggressive personalities or be unlikable. They're certainly not allowed to be fat or take up space. And so I feel like there are distinct ways that are all-consuming you know, as you said, the white noise of shame is really huge. And then I feel like most times when women and girls are trying to learn their way out of those totally contradictory scripts that are at odds with one another, they are punished for trying to find a more amenable path forward where they have some like confidence and self-esteem and self-love. And that's a very, very hard place to navigate for girls but certainly for adult women and you know i think that um, that when they do say no you know to shame culture then they feel an incredible guilt about it Because one of the scripts that women are asked to perform is the constant care of others, that emotional labor that you and I talk about so frequently. Women are asked to consider the feelings of others above their own. Women are asked to do other-centered labor all the time, right? You know, they care for the children, they take care of the sick, they bury the dead, they do all of this incredible emotional labor to keep families and communities together, and they're asked to prioritize the feelings of others over themselves, and so you get, you know, these martyr complexes, and we know that we, you know, we all know what that looks like, where women sacrifice all of themselves because, they, because there is no stable place away from the shame and guilt that is revered. And because the female martyr is one of the scripts that is understood and legible and reproduced and circulated so frequently inside of religion and outside, that seems like a place where adult women especially can create a concrete identity. But ultimately, I think that that's, that's really difficult. Men do not have the, the, nearly the number, the sheer number of scripts that they have to perform, nor do they have the shame that goes with the failure to perform <laughs> every aspect of those scripts.
1: The other thing about these scripts for women is that sometimes they're in contest with each other. Women are supposed to perform that emotional labor, and they're supposed to do it with humility and silence. But then now they're called to lean in also so it's like you know there's this script of humility and meekness and grace that women are supposed to exhibit at risk of being perceived in these ways that you were you were talking about earlier but then also if you're not getting ahead in the workplace like you know yeah. you're not leaning in enough and that can, is at odds with other expectations. That oh no, women leaning are held in. To. Leaning
0: in is totally a shame script. It is entirely about shaming yourself towards others. I mean, shame doesn't exist unless other people perceive the offenses that you have committed, <laughs> right? It's a scarlet letter. Yeah, yeah it is. So it, it has to be perceived by another. So the the lean in culture asks everybody to patrol you to keep you on script. And so one of my favorite philosophers is a woman named Sandra Lee Barkey, and I love her work on the phenomenology of oppression. I teach her stuff on shame all the time. And I like her because she talks about how women's bodies function as a kind of prison, And she talks about this guy, Jeremy Bentham, who's sort of the original architect of the modern penitentiary and about how in the early prisons that he designed, there was a watchtower in the center and the watcher could look out and see all of the cells oriented around it in a circle but none of the prisoners could see into the watchtower to see the watcher. And ultimately, they didn't even have to put anybody in the watchtower. Just having that space where there was an expectation of somebody surveilling you 24-7 was enough that the prisoners would internalize the prison warden inside of themselves. And that's exactly, I think, how shame culture works for women in a way that is extremely distinct from the way that it works for men. I think she's totally correct. That the shame culture, especially around body shaming and sexuality and the performativity of emotional labor has become for a lot of women a gilded cage where they, you know, they pad it with all of these pretty trinkets and they dress it up in heterosexual marriage or in economic power of consumption or in roles in their communities that are extremely hierarchical. And that what they've ultimately done is become their own prison warden inside of these discourses of shame
1: and occasionally guilt. And that is extremely toxic. I think that relation to visibility is really interesting. How shame is, in part, about being seen. And I think it's playing out in an interesting way because the internet has kind of made things hyper visible. Like if you make a mistake and it's been recorded, if you get arrested, your picture is, you know... All over the interwebs. On the internet. And a lot of... I mean, there's, like, a kind of side business where people will, like, save those pictures and, like, try and get them to populate in Google searches and you have to pay people off to, like, take them off the internet. So there's this, like, huge visibility that's being created. Shame is being reinforced in these ways in this, like, digital context, too.
0: For me, I I object so strongly to the use of shame. I think that there are occasions where guilt can be a productive internal emotion to think through the harm that one has done to another. There's some productive value in that. Sometimes. Shame, I think there's zero productive value in. I think it is the most destructive human emotion, and I think that the thing in digital culture that I find most offensive is call out culture right where you know you're on Twitter or you're on Facebook and you're calling somebody out for their inability to see their own privilege or for their racism and classism and I do this work for a living, and I think about it literally with every waking moment in every fiber of my being and shaming people publicly like that. The data is so clear in the communication field that shame only reinforces negative behaviors and does not create spaces for coalition building or forward movement. People become calcified in their feelings, those negative feelings, and they do not move past them. So, I mean, just from a purely data perspective, shame is the opposite of social movement momentum it is the opposite impulse of social transformation. Like literally, it does the opposite. So that, from a practical perspective, shame is terrible for changing social structures and eradicating the isms that are so problematic. From a personal perspective, shame makes people feel horrible and it makes them not want to engage in difficult conversations. So as somebody who does anti-racism work and anti-sexism work if you shame people for their lack of knowledge for their misspeaking for their inarticulateness for like just being human they will not participate in those conversations again I think call-out culture rejects the spirit of generosity through which that we actually need to create conversations where people can feel vulnerable and move forward shame short circuits that vulnerability and it makes people close up And not want to engage. So you can do that on the internet and call people names and shout at them and think that somehow you're making a difference by pointing out some aspect of their identity that you don't think they're painfully aware of. And at the end of the day, all that does is make it totally impossible to connect with that person.
1: I agree with you in part. I don't think shame is productive for social progress, but I do think I don't know. I don't think it's useful to call out people for things that they have no control over or that are like innate qualities or that are about like social status or the fact that they're women, which actually happens, which is crazy. All the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not productive at all to shame people for that. But I do think maybe shaming things that are corrupt and dysfunctional. I mean, I think that is useful but I wouldn't call that shame though because
0: the things that are corrupt are pathologically corrupt they're structurally corrupt and pathology cannot be shamed sociopaths don't feel shame right so they they're not going to change their behaviors because you said something critical about their ascent to power or whatever I think that shame works with people who are conscious of their own flaws and their inadequacies and all it does is magnify those things. And I think about it, like, I think about it in the context of sex and sexuality. I think about purity culture. You know, we talk about that here at, at Lean Back all the time. And Jessica Valenti's wonderful book, The Purity Myth, is so startlingly clear about how purity and pornography are co-constitutive. Like, they both exist at the same time. They have to exist together for one thing. They define one another. And that's the case. I mean, you cannot have the script of purity and virginity without also having the same people who manufacture those ideals also producing and making money from and consuming pornography. And both of those frames are being controlled by men and not women, and both of them are used to shame women. Ludacris has a wonderful line. It's like, lady in the street, freak in the bed. Those are both impossible things to be, and men want them both simultaneously. I mean, that is enough to make women emotionally schizophrenic. And I mean that in sort of a clinical way. Like, how can you possibly fulfill the demands of both of those things simultaneously all the time? You, how can you be the virgin and the whore? All, you're going to get punished for both of them all the time. I feel like shame is not a useful tool to understand structural oppression at all. It's only useful at the interpersonal level and the negative consequences of using shame are so huge that I do not, I just don't see it as a productive
1: space. I think you're right. There are like a lot of negative consequences. I feel like a lot of times it even perpetuates inequality and like creates coercive conformity. Shame tricks people into being subservient in a lot of ways, you know, go, go.
0: that's a, that's <laughs> the right impulse. And it's lazy thinking. Shame Especially within call out culture. It's it's ridiculous to just say you're so white (laughs) Or white people can't speak on X Y or Z things Now you might not prefer the things that they say they might be wrong Of course their ideas are influenced by all of the structural oppression that they benefit from all of that stuff is true But at the end of the day if the goal is to create conversations that create liberatory potential shame is never ever ever going to be the avenue for liberation It's not.
1: I think that people, feminists in particular, are keying in to how problematic shame is because there are all these like reverse narratives of shame that people are using for empowerment. Like in the abortion movement where women are saying like, I am not ashamed that I had an abortion because there's so much shame surrounding (laughs) abortion and it's being called out now. Like that's actually a problem. There's a lot of shame around not being able to live your values. There is no space for women
0: and people of color and differently abled people. And neurodiv- I mean, like, there is not space to claim caring for yourself as a priority.
1: Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. It's a
1: huge problem. So I'm curious, in what way can you appreciate your mistakes or your imperfections. I know we talked about the I'm not ashamed of having an abortion is like one strategy. There is an argument where like there's a certain kind of like shamelessness that's bad. it's like malign shamelessness sociopaths or like antiheroes where you're just like completely disregarding other people's feelings as well in pursuit of your own self-care or self-interest. And that and not being ashamed of that is a problem or feeling guilty at all is a problem but in what way can you not feel ashamed and then it is empowering and productive i mean i think the key to that is compassion
0: we don't have compassion anymore that is not a public feeling that circulates the way that it did in the late 20th century it doesn't exist anymore i think it's basically been erased from public discourse watching the trump campaign right now because we're recording this in the summer of 2016 has been very instructive as the complete and total erasure of compassion as a public feeling as a way that we understand policy as the way that we understand you know the ethics of public policy and the way that you know politicians are supposed to care for all of their constituents that you know that that notion of you know statecraft. As a, as, a, as a way of building public sentiment is gone, but it has to come back. So I hate shame because it totally lacks compassion, completely and totally. It is, it is a way of cutting oneself off from compassion for the self, and is a way from cutting oneself off from others in a way that acknowledges their shared vulnerability as people. There is no liberation without vulnerability, and there's no liberation without compassion. And shame is the opposite of compassion. It does not not allow for error. It does not allow for re-articulation or recalibration or consensus. I feel like shame is a fascist feeling. It's tyrannical in its judgment of the person. Jay Smooth is a DJ and a public intellectual who I love very much in Brooklyn. And he talks about, you know, the things that were said were racist, but the person isn't racist. The making a distinction between the ideas and the person. And I think people are lazy about being able to distinguish between those. So I post things from people, and I don't necessarily agree with all of the things those people have done. But sometimes their ideas are compelling, including people that I don't politically agree with, including people who have said other things that I disagree with. The drive to try and create total consistency in all of the ideological expressions is a bad impulse, actually, I think. And it's not like that just happens on the conservative side. Liberals do that stuff all the time. They want some sort of ideological purity that is not real, it's just completely imaginary, it's an imaginary identification. So I would like to see more compassion and more vulnerability and less self-loathing because what happens is that shame is self-loathing that gets projected on the other person and there is no spirit of generosity that is guiding those kinds of exchanges where people can get to the point of vulnerability to where they can come to a, a new consciousness or a new understanding or a new form of liberation. What do you think about other ways in which we can understand the moment to transcend guilt and shame to be more productive among individuals?
1: I like that you said that compassion is absent, because I think that's, like, startling for some people. I think about Monica Lewinsky, and she's recently been very vulnerable about the shame that she experienced and the fallout of the sex scandal that she was... Party to. She talks about the public response, and she talks about a feminist roundtable. There was, like, a feminist roundtable put together of thinkers responding to what had happened and they just totally threw her under the bus yeah they dragged I mean, her <laughs> i mean and i mean from all of these places where she expected compassion and like an understanding that she was a person who made a mistake she received the opposite and even like <laughs> no compassion no compassion that and, is not surprising to
0: me and i'll tell you why i i know that i've talked about it Before here, but I am, like, really sort of offended and I find grotesque the impulse of feminists towards misandry, towards man-hating. And I get why it happens women are subjected to so much social violence and so much shame and so much stigma and so much, so much social violence that I understand why women joke about it and talk about it as a funny thing. But at the end of the day, the only way that gender inequality and all of the other inequalities can be overcome in the interpersonal realm is through a deep shared feeling where you acknowledge that men have terrible feelings too and guilt and shame. And if you can't do that, there's no place for it. There's no place to reach the conscience where you build a new consciousness, there's no way to find a path of forgiveness of the self or the other where men can become productive partners in building a more equal society and that's the same thing for white people and you know and wealthy people and got to be able to be compassionate enough to see the other person's fears and what the kinds of concealments and places where they're hiding their deepest selves if you want to move past this just facile labeling of people as bad or good. I mean, it's just, it's so lazy. And feminists do it too, all the time. They do it. And they do it because they are trying to protect themselves from the social violence that surrounds them. So it's not like I don't get it, why that becomes the reaction right but it is reactionary if you don't want to be reactionary and you want to be proactive and build structures that are sustainable and liberatory then you have to get to the place where the compassion is the path you know and feminists did not do that for monica Lewinsky. and what was she doing well ultimately she was an adult person enjoying sexual pleasure as a woman and she got dragged which is
1: bullshit But I I almost think that shame perpetuates more shame. I agree with that. (laughs) So, like... Totally. If you can shame someone else who is worse than you, that alleviates some of your shame as a person. So these feminists had, like, deep-rooted shame about being women and... Giving blowjobs. Like, yeah. Enjoying sexual pleasure. And in some way, like, how problematic Monica Lewinsky's was. They just, like put her at a distance to separate. They objectified her. That's the irony
0: of it, is that the thing that they did to Monica Lewinsky is they turned her into an object upon which they projected all of their own personal inadequacies about the ambivalence that they have about sex with men. And that's not surprising because the sex wars in the 1980s where the lesbian feminists sort of pointed this out, that was a breaking point of really intense, interesting, productive lesbian theory. And yes, some of it was transphobic, and that's regrettable, and thankfully we've moved past that bit of it. But at the end of the day, that lesbian theorizing was absolutely the most cutting-edge kind of theorizing about feminine selves and their relationships to male power. So the irony is that they did exactly to her what they want to avoid for themselves. It's understandable how that happens, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? So I have compassion for them, for how that became their reaction to her in that moment, the things that they felt that they had to say. But what they did to her is not, that's
1: not right. What I really like though, is how vulnerable she's being. And I think she's creating space, you know, Mm -hmm, in like admitting her mistakes. I mean, partially she is like, listen, I was a young girl, (laughs) you know, I was a kid. I was right out of college. That's an age where you make mistakes. So in some ways, She isn't owning it all the way, but she's owning it in a way she's like, I made a mistake. And that opens up a space, I think, to permit other people to admit similar mistakes. And she's creating a situation where she's like, look, I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve all of that shame. I deserved compassion.
0: I ultimately think that vulnerability is an extremely powerful position because it has so much forward momentum. It has so much potentiality for honesty, (laughs) which is liberatory, and vulnerability, which is liberatory, and it opens a bunch of communicative space to, to transgress the social scripts and boundaries that create structures that are oppressive. That's a real thing. I think. And I also think that what happened to Monica Lewinsky was an intense culture of humiliation. That is part of how women experience shame that men do not. Men are not ritually humiliated because they are men. They're not. If you look at just a cursory, a cursory examination of popular culture, of sitcoms, would show you the, you know, grotesque, fat white man with the super hot, shrewish woman. I mean, the script for how much negative space that men can take up while not being judged as unethical, inhuman, brutal is tremendous. I mean, again, you know, we're in the middle of this Trump campaign, which is, you know, a carnival-esque expression of the grotesqueness of negative space that men can take up. You know, and some of us find it rightfully repulsive and some people are incredibly attracted to it. But the fact that people are publicly attracted to it and that is a reasonable thing in this culture tells you about how much of that kind of negative space that um, men can occupy that women cannot, you know, because of that culture of humiliation. That humiliation that happened to Monica Lewinsky, she can never escape from, ever, Mm -hmm. except through her own liberatory self-compassion and creating spaces where her vulnerability can help reorient individual people's ideas about you know what they think that she is or what she has done.
1: I think, though, that men do experience shame, but it's around vulnerability. Their shame is related to being vulnerable. Yeah, I agree with which that. Which drives them to do the opposite, like seek power and control and refuse vulnerability, which is exactly the opposite thing that they should do to, like, alleviate that damage.
0: Well, that's the thing about trolling. You know, watching the the man trolls on Reddit or Twitter or Facebook or even my own male friends who come at me occasionally when we disagree, watching them interact in male space, even if they're so-called feminists, is so hyper-aggressive and is so anti-intimacy. That's pervasive. It's a pervasive culture of humiliation that ultimately seeks to silence women so that they do not have social power, so that they don't want to speak or leave their houses or take up public space or have ideas or be scientists or run for political office or whatever. All, the end goal of the culture of shame as it pertains to women and the humiliation that goes along with it that creates social stigmas that last a lifetime is to silence women so they do not participate in public culture. That is the end goal of it which is why I find it so repulsive. When it is used by allies to to try and create hierarchies of oppression or try and get people to, quote-unquote, stay in their lane, that shame culture is ultimately chilling to public expression. It is anti-liberatory. And it's reflexive of that. Like, the people who do shaming right, whether it's a catcalling and sexual harassment in street culture, or whether it's online trolling, or whether it's sexism in the classroom, or whether it's the lean-in culture in the corporate environment, all that stuff serves to do is radically undermine the potential of women to, to, to practice and exercise political power, and it starts so young as girls, it starts with the bra snapping, and the deep pantsing and the, the, you know, dipping the pigtails and in the inkwell and the brutality that we call flirting right which is really violence it starts so young and it goes all the way to the end of life and it's in it's, it feels inescapable i think for a lot of women who haven't found the path for intimacy and vulnerability and compassion and have not built the skills to create safe spaces I want to say one more thing about safe spaces there, because I feel like that is a conversation that's been happening a lot. It's like trigger warnings and, oh my gosh, campuses shouldn't be safe spaces. No, actually, actually, if you understood anything about cognitive psychology or the development of the post-adolescent brain and social self, safe spaces are actually super important in negotiating, like, I don't know, social and personal boundaries about things like, I don't know, violence. We want to have safe (laughs) spaces. Like, how... It's, it's so, it's it's so ridiculous to think that, you know, we're still having the argument about the state of nature, (laughs) whether it is the Leviathan or not. That's, it's an absurdity that we can't come to a consensus that no, we actually want to live in a safe space. Without guns or without violence or without, you know, social inequalities that perpetuate them. That we want to live in a place where people do feel safe. Why is that not a thing that we can come to a consensus about? But it's not because fundamentally people in this culture want instability to exist because that's how they have power. And so the people who are saying safe spaces are ridiculous or you have no right to a safe space are also the people who are like, you should stand your ground and shoot anybody that you want to because you're white and you're a property owner. Those two things, like the, the gun debate, <laughs> the presidential election, you know, rape culture and the, the conversation about campuses and trigger warnings and safe spaces are all part of a public discourse that has refused, refused compassion and wants to, to push forward a much more fascist ideology. And, and shame is an integral tool in doing that. So even when it's used by people who are well-meaning and who want to be allies and they're practicing their new you know, graduate school words about oppression, it still functions ultimately to build a more fascist culture, in my humble opinion. Thanks for listening! These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.